Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting July 25th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... They think that things like abortion and pornography are directly linked to the teaching of evolution in the schools. That's Stephen Asma from Columbia College, Chicago, talking about the folks behind the new Anti-Evolution Creationism Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. He's done scholarly research on science museums, which makes him a great reviewer of the new museum, and we'll talk to him this week, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Steve Asma is Professor of Philosophy and Humanities at Columbia College, Chicago, where he also carries the title of Distinguished Scholar. He toured the Creation Museum and wrote an article about it in the current issue of Skeptic, the magazine of the Skeptic Society, which was founded, by the way, by Scientific American columnist Michael Shermer, who also edits Skeptic magazine. Anyway, the Creation Museum explains how dinosaurs and humans lived side by side, as well as numerous other fantasies. To find out more, I called Asma at his office in Chicago. Professor Asma, good to talk to you today. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Okay, so you're you're an expert in a, in a sense on natural history museums in general. You wrote a whole book about natural history museums. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I did a book that's um, it's a history of uh, Western collecting practices from really from the Renaissance period up to the present, and I did a sort of comparative analysis of uh, the way in which uh, you know the United States is engaged in natural history collecting versus, say, um, Great Britain and uh, France. So I looked at some of these major institutions like the Field Museum or the American Museum of Natural History, uh, but also, um, and sort of their correlates uh, in uh, England, um, the, the Kensington Museum and the Grand Gallery of Evolution in Paris, but also some sort of smaller idiosyncratic collections, uh, Cuvier's collection, uh, John Hunter's collection, uh, something like, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, the Mutter Museum. And so I, I looked at all these different collections and, and tried to see what were the things that all museums were doing uh, together over time, what were sort of their missions, as it were, and how did they differ and change. And there are some very quirky characters. You know, the curators are very interesting, the, the specimens, the taxidermy. And so I, I did sort of a interdisciplinary approach, and that was the study. And uh, you really kind of hit the jackpot by going to the Creation Museum if you're looking for quirky uh, oh, yeah. curators. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you you go to the museum, and first of all, tell us what is the actual physical layout? What are What is a visitor confronted with when you walk in? Well, when you, when you first walk in, you feel like you're in this, you know, it's very modern, um, they're definitely trying to speak to a savvy, um, you know, uh, pop culture, secular culture. And so you walk into an institution that looks like any other sort of vaguely new age in terms of the architecture, but any other sort of public museum. And when you first enter, there's a very high ceiling with skylights that are sort of throwing light against a what looks like a, a sort of a crevasse um, of of like the Grand Canyon, and in situ, sort of in place there, you find uh, sort of uh, fossil bones jutting out, and you walk along this entryway to, to pick up your tickets, and that's how you first get into the museum. All right, so that's what greets you immediately, and what's the what's the rest of the physical layout like there? I know there are dinosaurs there. Oh, yeah. 
when you when you first walk in after you sort of purchase your ticket, there's a theater, and you're encouraged to sort of see this little uh, film first called Men in White, which is a which is a pun, a kind of a play on uh, Men, men in, in Black. Black. Yeah, and the two Men in White are you know wearing sunglasses and very hip, but they turn out to be the angels Gabriel and the, and Michael, so referred to as Gabe and Mike uh, throughout the film, and it's this kind of humorous. Um, uh, kind of embarrassing uh, little uh, film about how you don't have to accept what the scientists are saying. These eggheads are just, uh, you know, uh, giving us a worldview that's depressing and nihilistic, and there's another way, and that's the sort of mission of the Creation Museum. And then from there, you start to enter the exhibits. Now, you had an extensive conversation with Ken Ham. Yeah. The, the curator, the, the uh, real mover behind the creation of the Creation Museum. That's right. So maybe some of the uh, listeners don't know about Ken, Ken Ham. Why don't you give us a little bit about him and uh, and about the the fascinating conversation that you had. The quality of his rhetoric is really interesting. I mean, when you when you read Ham's quotes. He is not a dumb guy. He, no. he comes across as a very bright guy, possibly delusional, <laughs> but but very bright. So you have this conversation with him that that feels when when one reads it, or when I read it, it it felt to me like like it's almost Lewis Carroll. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, one of the things people I think. Um... If you don't enter into this creationist logic too far, it is really easy to go, well, you know, crazy, crackpot, insane. But if you, if you actually try to, like I did, have a, a reasonable conversation with, uh, somebody like Ken Ham, you, you feel that there's a kind of logic there. It just begins from very bizarre premises. For example, I, he said that, uh, dinosaurs were in fact on Noah's Ark. And, which was, my understanding of creationism, was that at least older versions of it, you know, the dinosaurs just didn't make it in the flood or something and were wiped out. But but when I heard that dinosaurs were on the, on the ark, I asked him, um, you know, how how was that managed in terms of space? And and, uh, and I even asked him, well, how, how many sheep or, or uh, basically how many prey animals would dinosaurs have to eat? And you'd have to load that on the ark. And before I know it, I'm having this kind of elaborate conversation about how many sheep and his argument was, well, maybe the dinosaurs were vegetarians because God could have. We know that uh, in a crisis, you know, carnivores can switch to a vegetarian diet, and perhaps the dinosaurs didn't eat any sheep and they ate, the, you know, grains or something. So, you know, at this point, I'm like scratching my head, but uh, you you do get drawn into it somehow. And the number of species argument gets taken care of because. The, the literal biblical interpretation is kinds and not species. That's right. Yeah, they, they feel strongly that the um, issue is not species, but rather genus. And, and even there, they're not using the term as contemporary zoologists would use the term. It's much more fuzzy, and they just mean sort of almost like how folk culture uses the word kind. Well, kinds of things. And he sort of said to me, well, you know, just like there are all these different... Uh, dogs, you know, in the end, he said, uh, they're all the same kind of thing, a dog. So therefore, what the scientists are telling us are, are many different um, species of uh, dinosaur are in fact really just, um, you know, 
one or two kinds, and uh, you, you know, he, he seems to think that the number is really a couple of dozen. So they could get on the ark after all, and we could put them on the ark. He thinks uh, Noah could put them on the ark in a juvenile state, so that they were small, big babies or uh, toddler <laughs> uh, dinosaurs, and therefore they wouldn't take up as much room. That's really fascinating. So instead of Evo Devo, you have Creation Devo. That is right. <laughs> so a little, let's talk a little bit more about Ken Ham. He's uh, uh, a young Earth creationist. So these these are the people who believe that the Earth is about six thousand years old. That's right. Yeah, he he's a he comes from Australia originally, and apparently while there, uh, he took a, a bachelor's degree in uh, science, which is astounding. Um, and he, his dream was to start a creation museum there in Australia. Uh, for some reason, which is not explained to me, he ended up in the States and kept the dream alive in his, in his terms, and then started this museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. He, he subscribed, as you said, to the Young Earth Doctrine, that uh, if you calculate, you know, it's the same old Bishop Usher kind of calculation of the genealogies in the Bible, you'll end up with a creation date of around 6,000 years ago, and everything else in the sciences, pretty much all of geology, is a kind of fabrication or a series of sort of uh, errors uh, based on, on the sort of assumptions of secular scientists. That's his, that's his worldview. That's all of geology, all of cosmology, obviously yeah. all of modern biology. That's right. The subhead of your article is the deeper agenda of the New Creation Museum in Kentucky. So what is the deeper agenda? Well, um, having studied uh, a lot of different museums, you know, um, I expected, you know, to, to hear a kind of subtle, uh, you know, subtext um, described to me by the, uh, you know, the directors and so forth. But they they were very explicit and said, "Look, the the agenda, the deeper agenda of the museum is to convert people to Christianity." Full stop. That's the point of the museum. It is an evangelical center. You quote Ham as saying that evolutionary humanism, which I guess is his term for secular science and evolutionary theory, uh, has had a devastating effect on society. What exactly is this horrible effect? Because I thought society was in many ways more equitable and and just in general better than it's ever been. Yeah, well, uh, they they think that um, things like abortion and pornography and suicide are directly uh, linked to uh, the teaching of evolution in the schools because they they believe that evolution teaches a kind of nihilism that everything is ultimately meaningless because. Uh, you no longer need God to sort of explain the origin of species or the development of life on the planet. And once you've removed that, you're left with this kind of cold, um, dismal world where you're just on a hunk of earth spinning around the sun and God's not looking out for you. And, and all of that leads to the social ills that, that social conservatives have always sort of acknowledged in the 20th century. And so... They think that um, that that causes the rise of abortion, pornography, and so forth. But if you if you think about um, natural selection as the cause of our being here, um, or you know the process by which we've arrived, then you'll lose hope for humanity in general. And that, 
and then engage in these other, you know, social evils. So because you will lose hope, the science is not true. Yeah, that's the interesting logic, yes. Uh, I think in many cases that, you know, you know, Ken Ham is, is savvy and wouldn't say it quite like that because he's careful enough to know that that, that just sounds like wishful thinking causing your, your sort of, um, your, your sort of metaphysical views. And I think he'd be more careful to say it that way, but I think, you know, if you look at it, um, in a detached way, that's, that's definitely what it, what it appears to be. Talk about the uh, culture in crisis exhibit that you spend a little time in the article on. Yeah, the culture in crisis exhibit uh, is like uh, many of the other exhibits um, in the sense that they're employing the edutainment um, techniques that you find at, at most other institutions. You have some video going, you have some things that kids can manipulate, you have some traditional um, you know, vitrines and text. But when you walk into this exhibit, you have a kind of video projection going on inside the windows of, the, of this sort of average American home. So you, you look through the window and you see a girl with abortion pamphlets all around her crying. In the other window, there's a couple of boys um, sort of experimenting with drugs and watching pornography on the, on the, you know, on the computer. In another window, there's a, a, the parents fighting and arguing. And, and then sort of across the way from this, you see that the, there's an exhibit that indicates to you the cause of all this misery. And the cause is, um, the idea of an ancient earth that the world is billions of years old. That is like written on a, a, a sort of a smashing, uh, sort of construction ball. And that ball is smashed into a church and, and sort of now the church is crumbling all around it. So the, you know, the, the actual display is showing you that, that the ideas that come from geology and cosmology and science have actually led to the fall and uh, the breakdown of morality in America. So the, the article talks about the fact that, uh, your article talks about the fact that it, it, uh, costs $27 million to, to build the Creation Museum. And you also say that it is continuing to pick up steam in big budget patronage. Yeah. So where is this money coming from? And is there any federal money involved here? Uh, my, my understanding is that there is not federal money, but um, I'm not... Uh, they were cagey uh, about that when I asked, and I can't say for sure. Um, I didn't uncover much data on this myself. My understanding is that most of this money comes from wealthy patrons who are also evangelical Christians and believe in the mission of the museum, and then the museum is itself an offshoot of a larger organization called Answers in Genesis, and Answers in Genesis um, makes a, a tremendous amount of money by selling um, DVDs, books, CDs, um, they do speaker tours, they go to schools, they're, they're, it's an elaborate website, um, they, I know they generate a lot of income through that Answers in Genesis. But to my knowledge, I, I don't know about uh, federal funds. Right, and they, and they sell a lot of uh, educational equipment to homeschool parents. That's too, right. I believe, right? Yeah. yeah. Would you go again? I would definitely go again. Um, I think um, probably I'll wait a little while. I'm not in a hurry to get back there because the experience is um, 
it's uh, it, it's stra- it's a strange emotional experience because you're on the one hand you're some of it is just funny um, and and hard to believe. On the other hand, there's bits of it that are sort of frightening um, for two reasons. One is that you can see tremendous devotion and care has gone into the creation of the museum and and the creation of a worldview that is kind of that just simply flies in the face of all the scientific understanding we have of nature. So that's hard to take. And then there's something about the us and them quality of the of the museum, especially in the later exhibits, where look, the enemy is sort of among us. There's this sort of one gets the sense that you're either with us or against us, and and that I think is a frightening possibility. And I think that can't be good for us down the road um, as a culture uh, to create these kinds of infighting um, suspicions and paranoias. And you also talk about uh, the the possible kind of interpretation that that any young kid is going to have when they go to a place like this because it looks like an official kind of institution that's right yeah the 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 way in which knowledge is presented um is something that i i studied a lot when looking at all museums and it has a huge psychological impact on you when you study when you sort of go to a museum and it has that sort of rhetorical um arts of persuasion, you know, that other museums have, the, the edutainment quality or even some of the classic, classical sort of qualities that one experiences in a museum. These, I think, in many ways are persuasive, especially to younger minds, that what you're experiencing in the museum is truth, that it's it's got to be true because, look, it's, uh, it's written down in these tablets, it's in the movie here, it's uh, clearly they have the dinosaurs. Um, and I think that's dangerous. Some of my colleagues think I'm being uh, overly, uh, you know, wor- I'm worrying for nothing and kids can kind of figure out that this is sort of Flintstone stuff and not to worry about it. But I, I don't, I'm not so sure. In in this world, um, uh, the, the world of evangelical Christian in America today, um, especially in, in, you know, the heartland and in the South, Increasingly, the only way they're getting information is through other evangelical Christian media. So they're not actually encountering other, um, you know, information about not only about nature but about the news and about culture and about other people. So I tend to think that, um, you know, if kids are are sort of immersed in this closed information system, and they and they go to this museum, well, you know, then evolution, geology, astronomy, all of it's going to be treated with a kind of suspicion, and uh, it won't be studied properly. And and not the good, healthy suspicion that uh, the scientists themselves <laughs> right, treat it with. Right. <laughs> hey, you have another book coming out, uh, scheduled to come out in 2008, on monsters. Tell yeah. us a little, about, a little bit about that. Well, that's a, um, in a way, my interest in monsters has come out of my interest in natural history because um, traditionally natural history has been sort of on the cusp um, at trying to sort out, you know, what what is actually believable and credible out there in nature and what is fantastic. And if you look at natural history, history all the way up into the 20th century, it's always trying to figure out, well, you know, is there such a thing as a... You know, um, these giant sea creatures, is there, you know, the, the stuff of cryptozoology, you know, the Yeti and uh, um, 
are there in fact giant squids? Uh, are there in fact cyclops? This kind of stuff. And uh, so I'm tracing that that kind of a uh, interest um, that we've always had in the exotic, the strange, and the, the and the frightening, and trying to understand like well, what what changed? You know, in the early days, it would be you know if you look at the Christian era of the medieval period, mostly demons and witches and this sort of thing. Um, in the Dar- in the Darwinian uh, era, uh, monsters become reconceptualized so that they're no longer these demons from the other world, but in fact just problems with uh, natural biological processes. And so you get the development of, of teratology and the study of um, developmental disabilities and this kind of thing. So I'm, I, that's what I'm sort of looking at in that in that new book. And the uh, the the monsters of the early. 20th century, late 19th century have, the study of them has uh, given us our modern kind of evo-devo evolutionary theory in, in its most uh, most comprehensive form. That's right. That's right. I think it's it has been, a, it was actually important to Darwin himself, although the history of Darwin's thought tends to stress, you know, his discovery of natural selection, you know, by reading Malthus and, and, and sort of emphasizing that. Uh, parallel to that was his, he was very influenced by, he would sort of walk around and back when he was friends with Richard Owen, they would walk around in the, in the Hunterian Museum in London. And the Hunterian Museum is filled with one sort of monstrous, uh, sort of jar, uh, fetus after another. And, uh, these things had an impact on him, uh, and he began to think about, well, what do monsters tell us about, uh, biological processes in general? And so it did have a yeah, we should probably explain that uh, in in common parlance, monsters might be thought of as Frankenstein and Dracula. Right. But in biology, well, why don't you tell us what monsters are in in the the world of science and biology? Well, the 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 term that's uh, of course no one uh, uses the term monster um, really in a contemporary way because it's loaded with um, sort of pernicious uh, judgment and so forth. But but. Teratology it comes from the, the, the Greek word for monster, and so teratology is the study of developmental um, changes or abnormalities, anomalies in embryogenesis, whether they be sort of, uh, eventually we can't understand certain things were genetic, but um, some things were also just environmental. You know, you change the temperature of developing um, fetus and you get sort of different uh, phenotypic changes, and so that that's what uh, I'm referring to when I talk about sort of post-Darwinian monster studies. Um, but but part of the book I'm writing is trying to figure out well how did that transition happen? You know, in the ancient times, uh, somebody that would be born with uh, extra digit, you know, six fingers or or joined twins, for example, uh, or, or hermaphrodite, would be considered an omen from the gods and would actually be in many cases be killed. And so that's an interesting story of how we got to have a much better understanding and a scientific understanding of these uh, of these biological anomalies. Mm-hmm. Professor Asma, really great to talk to you. Thanks for the article. It's fascinating reading in the current issue of Skeptic, and uh, uh, hope to talk to you again when the monster book comes out. Great. Thanks for inviting me, Steve.
Over 100,000 people have visited the Creationism Museum in its first two months of operation. You can find Steve Asma's article about the museum at his website, www.stevenasma.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-A-S-M-A. Hit the link for research, and it comes right up. We'll be right back. Send your science videos to Scientific American and see if yours becomes a featured video. Follow the simple instructions at siam.com slash video submit. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, scientists have bred a low-calorie watermelon. Story two, a study of Medicare patients found that illiteracy was a big risk factor for death, surpassed only by smoking. Story three, studies of people who are prone to getting writer's cramp found that their hands tend to be much smaller on average than people who don't get that condition. And story four, new fingerprinting method also can provide lifestyle information about the person who left the prints. Time's up. Story one is true. U.S. Department of Agriculture scientists have indeed developed a low-calorie watermelon. Actually, the watermelon is very low in sugar compared with your more familiar watermelons, but still has the other desirable nutrients, such as antioxidants and potassium. So this watermelon may be okay for some diabetics. The low-sugar watermelon could be available in stores by the end of the summer. Story four is true. A fingerprinting method developed by British researchers gives more than just the pattern of the print. The technique pulls up the actual print and saves it using a gelatin-based tape. Once the pattern of ridges and whorls is recorded, the print can be analyzed for content such as drug traces, cigarette smoke, or foods ingested, thereby providing more information about the suspected criminal. And story two is true. A study found that illiteracy was second to smoking as an indicator of death risk because people who couldn't read didn't take medications properly or seek medical care appropriately. For more, check out the July 24th episode of the Daily Scientific American Podcast, 60-Second Science. All of which means that story three about people who get writer's cramp having small hands is totally bogus. But what is true is that researchers have found that writer's cramp is associated with less gray matter in the cerebellum, thalamus, and sensorimotor cortex, which are brain regions involved in controlling movement. That's according to research published in the July 24th issue of the journal Neurology. But the condition is still somewhat mysterious because it's not yet known whether the brain abnormalities are causing the writer's cramp or the writer's cramp is causing the brain issues. I sometimes get reader's cramp. In fact, my brain seized up several times while reading Steve Asma's article on the Creation Museum. That's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. And so, and so, and so, and so, and so,